Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 50, uh, verses 15 through 20. This is the word of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message back to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this life of Joseph that we have had the privilege of studying. Thank you for the example that he is to us on our perspective on life, our purpose here, and your goals through creation and through each of us. Help us to absorb your lessons from your word this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, five days after Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia in 1865, just five days after that, uh, the president at the time, Abraham Lincoln, was shot and killed while watching a play at Ford's Theater in D.C., Lincoln's family and cabinet were devastated by his shocking death, and there were actually other assassination attempts on his cabinet um, at the same time. But they were so shocked and bereft that it sent grown men who knew Lincoln into just blubbering grief and ended up sending his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, eventually to a mental institution. We remember Lincoln as one of the best presidents of our country who was willing to go to war to preserve the union of the states and whose actions eventually led to the end of African slavery in America. So how could his family have suffered so much? And how could such a good life be cut short by such an evil act? We've wrestled with questions like this as humans for thousands of years. And Joseph, this morning, had the right reaction. The first point in your outline this morning is burying Israel. Look with me at chapter 49, starting in 49, uh, 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. 
Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. You know, when Jacob began his journey to Egypt to meet Joseph back in chapter 46, God spoke to him in Beersheba on the way, encouraging him to continue his journey down to Egypt, reminding him that God will be with him, and promising that Joseph, his son, will close his eyes in death. This passage is another fulfillment of God's promises to Jacob and another piece of evidence that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. Remember, Jacob was renamed Israel by God, but to avoid confusion with the nation of Israel, I'll just refer to him as Jacob this morning. The text says something kind of strange here that we don't see other places about Jacob being embalmed. Um, That wasn't the standard practice for Hebrews at the time. Of course, we were only three generations into uh, the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. Everyone in, Egypt would be, uh, everyone in Egypt, though, at the time, would be embalmed after their death uh, with varying degrees of formality and expense. You know, pharaohs would go through this 40-day process of embalming. It was very long and detailed and included mummification and the removal of organs and lots of chemicals um, to slow the process of decay. But even the poorest Egyptians at this time, they would do something. They would at least salt their bodies to preserve them, as they believed was necessary for the afterlife. The main reason they believed uh, for preserving your body after physical death had to do with their eschatological beliefs. But we don't, uh, we don't believe that Joseph you know, joined that belief system. We don't believe that he uh, converted to an Egyptian religion um, for a couple of reasons. Um, it was wise to preserve Jacob's body for the trip back to the promised land, back to Canaan. Um, And mummification was actually pretty convenient for that. Um, Also, if Joseph didn't perform this kind of standard rite on his father's body, it may have actually been an insult to the Egyptians for their prime minister to not perform such a routine protocol. So uh, another reason, though, that we know that Joseph hadn't converted to an Egyptian religion is that um, Egyptian priests would typically perform this rite. Um, but it's very, the text is very clear that it wasn't the priests. It was, jo- uh, it was Joseph's servants, the physicians, embalmed Israel. So there was no religious portion of this. It was strictly medical. We also see here that that Pharaoh declared a national period of mourning for uh, Jacob's death for 70 days, which was only two days shorter than the period of mourning for a Pharaoh. So it was an extremely honorable thing for them to do. 40 days for the embalming process plus 30 days for mourning. And that seems to be a pretty standard period of mourning after the embalming. As we see later in Exodus, That's the same period of mourning that was had for Moses and for Aaron when they died. 
Uh, Look with me at chapter 50, verses uh, 4 and 5. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. There's like three levels of quotes here. So um, what's going on is Joseph asked the servants of Pharaoh to go to Pharaoh and say that Joseph said something and then say that Jacob said something. So you'll be forgiven if it's a little confusing. Um, Joseph doesn't approach Pharaoh directly. He doesn't just, you know, go into Joseph's office uh, or whatever the equivalent would that, uh, of that would have been. But he addresses his servants, Pharaoh's servants, his household. Um, I'm sure Joseph would have been welcome to just walk in to see Pharaoh, uh, probably even without notice, uh, given his stature as prime minister in the kingdom. But he sends messengers probably because he was either disheveled from mourning or he may have been considered unclean from touching his father's dead body. But for whatever reason, it appears to have been out of respect for Pharaoh and out of tact. We have no reason to believe that this was out of fear of reprisal uh, from Pharaoh. However, in a few minutes, we'll look at a request made by Joseph's brothers in almost the same exact structure. But they did that out of fear and distrust of Joseph. Pharaoh grants Joseph's request in verses 6 through 9. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Not only did Joseph get approval, get leave to go bury his father, but Pharaoh sent his entire household, even some of his military. Operations in Egypt would have slowed to a crawl, while Pharaoh's household and all the elders of Egypt and some of his military were gone. And it would have been a, a, probably about a month. A rough estimate puts it in about a two-week journey each way. Picking up with them in the middle of their journey, verses 10 and 11. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means the sorrow of Egypt. It is beyond the Jordan. This grievous mourning by the Egyptians was likely out of respect for Joseph rather than from the hearts of the household of Pharaoh and the military leaders. You know, uh, Jacob had been in Egypt about 17 years. Um, 
and he probably didn't have a lot of influence or a lot of friends on his own and was probably um, out of respect for his son, Joseph, the prime minister. Um, Now, we know from historical accounts that sometimes people would be hired as professional mourners to attend funeral services and memorials to loudly wail and mourn, which set the tone for how the family uh, wanted the dissident to be grieved. So it was not totally unheard of to have people fake it. It's not disingenuous. It was actually a compliment. And they were so loud (laughs) and disruptive in their mourning uh, that the Canaanites renamed that place the Sorrow of Egypt. Looking at verses 12 through 14, Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, where, uh, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Uh, Interesting note that Abraham's purchase of this land is recorded in uh, chapter 23. Uh, Sarah had just died in the land of the Hittites, uh, or Hebron, and the Hittites were willing to give Abraham this burial place as a gift. Uh, But Abraham insisted on paying Ephron the Hittite for a burial place out of the way of the others, down at the end of the row, in a cave. Uh, Abraham paid 400 shekels of silver for it, and he owned all right, title, and interest in this parcel in the middle of the promised land. This was Abraham's confidence that the land would be given to his offspring. Abraham would be buried there too, across from his wife Sarah, as well as Isaac and now Jacob. According to several accounts from the early 20th century, it is likely that their ancient bones actually remain in this cave at Machpelah, where they've been preserved these thousands of years. It's really quite amazing. It's been partially collapsed, some of the entrances. It's very difficult to get in, but apparently... Uh, their bones may still be intact. Okay, moving on. uh, The second point in your outline this morning is burying the hatchet. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they say it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Commentators seem to agree here that the brothers, when they quote Jacob, completely fabricated uh, this request. So again, because of the different layers of quotes, I want to make sure that this is clear. The brothers send a servant, and they instruct the servant to tell Joseph that Jacob had told Joseph (laughs) to forgive the brothers 
And so there's several layers of quotes here. So it, they were trying to convey that Jacob's dying, one of Jacob's dying wishes was for Joseph to forgive his brothers. And they send a messenger ahead. And Joseph wept. So the reason that it's believed that this is a fabrication was because it's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, Jacob didn't tell Joseph of this in his final instructions before he died. We had a long, lengthy instruction and blessing. And the way that they conveyed this message to Joseph was exactly how Joseph had respectfully requested leave from Pharaoh to bury Jacob. They both sent servants. The servants quoted their masters, and their servants also quoted a request made by Jacob. Joseph's brothers were probably trying to speak, in the most charitable view, they were trying to speak Joseph's language and say, well, this must be how things are done here. But it was still filled with lies, motivated by self-preservation. Continuing on, his brothers also came and fell down before him after the messenger had come. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's statement here in reaction to his brother's apology is one of the most profound statements in all of scripture on why life works the way it does. This idea touches on some major, major themes about which volumes have been written. So I'm not going to, you know, we're obviously not going to get there in the next 30 minutes. But we're drawn to think about things like cosmic justice and human justice. Why bad things happen to good people? Why good things happen to bad people? The purposes behind suffering? God's sovereignty over our lives? And, and lots more issues and implications here. You know, in the late 1970s, a Jewish author named Harold Kushner endured the ultimate agony of losing his son. As part of his grief, and in an effort to help others process similar pain, uh, he wrote the 1981 book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. In his book, Kushner supposes there are three pillars that describe the ordinary beliefs about God, humans, and suffering. He has these three points. He says, God is all-powerful and causes everything that happens in the world. God is just and fair, point number two, and stands for people getting what they deserve. And number three, people generally are good and deserve good things. So Kushner has set this up in such a way that these statements stand in tension. That one of them has to give way for a full understanding of why things happen to good people. Because what we regularly witness in real life, bad things do happen to good people. So he says, the scenario, what must be true in life, 
is one of the following three scenarios. God is either all-powerful and he is just and fair, but we're bad and we deserve bad things. That's scenario one. Scenario two is God is all-powerful and people are good, but he's not just and fair. He's pernicious. Or God is just and fair and people are good, but God is not all-powerful. That's his conclusion. The tragedy of Kushner is that he believes this third statement, that God is not all-powerful, but he wishes us the best. He's just and fair, and he wants the best for all us humans, but he's just not able to get there. He's just not able to prevent suffering. The creator of the universe just isn't quite able to run this contraption that he has created of human life. But he sends us best wishes. You've probably already noticed that this list is, of course, not intention, but has a logical fallacy contained with it. Look, another way to state this is really, since God has everything under his control, and since he loves us, then we should only experience uninterrupted blessing in our lives, unless we're bad. But that's not how life goes. It's just observing in our own lives. Bad things happen to good people. So something has got to be wrong here. So that's, that's his thinking. Now, a quick side note here. We're, we're talking about good people and bad people, as I've kind of mentioned. I, I don't think it's necessary to get to the doctrine of total depravity. Um, we're not talking about eternal destiny here. Um, we're talking about bad things and good things happening during life and within the class of people. So if you look at a class contained uh, in itself, there are good things within that class and bad things. So good, within the class of people, there are good people and there are bad people. So let's say those who obey the golden rule are good and deserve good things like success in business, good weather, no car accidents, and to occasionally win the lottery. Those who seek to injure others for their own benefit are bad and deserve bad things, like broken traffic lights, sickness, and disobedient children. But this classification of people as good and bad and its attendant demand that people are treated accordingly brings up the question of human dignity along with a score of other questions. Does a person who does bad things only deserve bad things in life? Should a person who commits murder ever be forgiven by society? What's the scheme of redemption in this view? Is there one? Can a bad person become a good person? What about good people who become bad people and then become good again? How should they be treated? This thinking about people getting exactly what they deserve in this life begins, of course, from our human point of view. Kushner states two attributes of God and then states a conclusion about the human concept of justice and fair play and anthropomorphizes that onto God. You know, my son Jack is five years old, and he loves to argue. He's very good at it, even for fun. pick, Pick a subject. I could just imagine my sweet, logical, argumentative five-year-old saying, my parents have money to buy food, 
and my parents love me, so why can I not eat chocolate for breakfast? It seems like a logical statement. It's a logical argument to Jack. But of course, my five-year-old doesn't know enough about nutrition to know what would happen if he actually ate chocolate for breakfast every day. You see, it's not for him to choose his meals and his nutrition, even as much as he would like to. Just as it's not for us to know why specific bad things happen to specific good people. We want chocolate for breakfast. We want happiness. But the truth is, God is sovereign, and he loves us very much, but that doesn't mean that his top priority is our happiness. His top priority is fellowship and community with humans, not our happiness during this life. A good person who is morally superior to her peers in her culture and time is promised nothing by scripture. You don't have to look any further than Ecclesiastes for this truth. There are lots of proverbs that state general principles of wisdom that direct people to, to be good rather than bad because there are rewards to being good, and that's wisdom. But generally, over the arc of scripture, there's no theme that says morally superior people will always be promised X, Y, and Z. That's not how it works. In fact, scripture says the opposite of that. Rain falls on the just and the unjust, Solomon lamented. The story arc of the entire Old Testament is God blessing a people because he chose to, not because they deserved blessing. And he continues to bless those people even when they utterly fail. Just to think within, a, within Genesis, where we see Isaac stealing the birthright from his older brother Esau, and how Isaac's son was Jacob, through whom the nation of Israel was formed. It wasn't formed through Esau's son, even though Esau was the firstborn. Furthermore, the nation of Israel was led by Joseph. But then, leadership would fall to Judah, who slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar in Genesis 38. The only reason he slept with his daughter-in-law is because he mistook her for a prostitute. We want to say that good people deserve good things and that bad people deserve bad things. But much to the disappointment of Friedrich Nietzsche, God was not actually created by man. God does not operate by human principles even though it would be easier to understand him if he did. If we could only fit God in our pocket, then life would make sense. David wrote this in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, 
It is high, I cannot attain it. Rather than Kushner's false dichotomy of his three pillars, two of which, two of which may, must stand and one must fall, the perspective we are to have on hard things in life is this. If we know these three truths, alluded to by authors like Paul David Tripp, we will have a proper perspective in the midst of any suffering. These are in your bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, make a note. Number one, God's reign is sovereign. Number two, God's glory is central. And number three, God's love is very great. God's reign is sovereign. God's glory is central. God's love is very great. First, God's reign is sovereign. We obviously don't have to look any further than the story of Joseph to illustrate this point. God used the evil intent of Joseph's brothers to orchestrate the otherwise completely unbelievable set of circumstances that made a Hebrew slave into the prime minister of Egypt, saving the lives of thousands of Egyptians and thousands of other people groups in the surrounding areas. Look in Exodus, 400 years later, how God used the evil command of the then Pharaoh to kill Hebrew babies, to bring baby Moses into Pharaoh's own household to be raised as a brother to the next Pharaoh. This circumstance allowed Moses to have the ear of his Pharaoh brother, as he later would plead with him to let the Hebrews go. Look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Adamic covenant. God's sovereignty, God sovereignly orchestrates the events of human history to fit his own purposes and his sovereignty is undeniable to any student of the scripture or of human history. That's number one, God's reign is sovereign. Number two, God's glory is central. God's seeking after his own glory. God wants more than anything else for people to know who he is and to know his true and perfect character. This point is extremely important to understand. And even as I began studying this, I bristled a little bit. But it functions as the lodestar of human thinking. It's the cornerstone of all Christian thought. 1 Corinthians says that whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, it doesn't say do all to your own happiness. It says do all to the glory of God. Okay, so let's take a second here and, and talk about God's glory. What does this mean? Why is God's glory central? Why is he seeking after his own glorification? Why do we do all things to the glory of God? Why does it matter so much? Well, it's well recognized and even catechized that humans cannot add anything to God. He does not need us. Uh, he doesn't need our worship, our praise. We can't add anything to God. He was in perfect community within the triune Godhead before creation and outside of creation. Someone has said that he created us for the very purpose 
of sharing the perfect community that existed within the triune Godhead. It was so enjoyable, that perfect community, that he wanted to share it. So he made us creatures to share it with. And that community was perfect until Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, separating us from God and putting a barrier between us. So we humans as a group could not share in that community with God any longer because a perfect God could not share community with imperfect or sinful people. But God had a plan to fix this and to enjoy community with his creatures once again. It would require a covering for our imperfections, our sins, so that when he looks at us, he could see perfection and enjoy perfect community with humans once again. But this this plan required a perfect member of the Godhead to be born as a human and to live a perfect life and to die as a covering for our imperfections. That way, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and we can have perfect community once again. So if this is true, if God's primary desire is to share his community with us, then it follows that he would, of course, want every human to know about it. Perfect community is a wonderful thing, and the story of how we humans can be included in that is a beautiful, true story. But Jesus' final command to his followers was what? Go make disciples. Go tell people about this. It's the whole reason I did this. Sharing this story, pointing out God's desire to share community with us, is God's glory. It's the glorification of God. Of course, we're going to worship him when we learn about it. It's, it's that sharing of the gospel. Listen to some of the final words in scripture found in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Everything revolves around God's desire to have community with us and that his community will expand. Number three, God's love is very great. God loves us so much that he sent a member of the Godhead to suffer and die on our behalf so that we can know him, so that we can share in his community. He loves us so much, he wants to share close community with us forever. It's not like that proverb that says, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house lest they get sick of you. He'll never get sick of us. You know, the closest human parallel to this is probably marriage. Think of how a man must love his bride to propose to her. He thinks of her every day. He considers what she might think of everything that he does. When they're apart, he counts the minutes until they can be together again. And this is how God feels about us. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. His love for his bride is intense. It will not give up. It will pursue us throughout our lives. And he's promised to love us forever. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we understand these three truths, which have nothing to do with our own moral superiority, I might add, then we will better understand God's purposes in suffering in our lives. God's reign is sovereign. God's glory is central. And God's love is very great. These truths are behind the much-loved principle we find in another place in Romans 8, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who love him. Not just us individually, but for all those who love him. Now, as a, as a quick aside here, there's an aspect to the Christian life and Christian community with God that, that bears mentioning. The Christian has a personal relationship with God. And we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. And fathers will discipline their sons and daughters in that relationship for their own good. This is not what we're talking about when we talk about suffering. If you're a Christian and you're continuing in a lifestyle characterized by sin, then you should expect some discipline from God, your father. You should expect things in your life to not go how you expect. And you should be on the lookout for what God is trying to teach you, and you should try to learn it. But this principle of discipline is separate and apart from suffering in general, which is what we're talking about this morning. And it's the main thrust of the story of Joseph. You know, if the story of Joseph is about suffering, then we'd go to the story of Jonah to learn about discipline. Joseph here, in his quote to his brothers, he was able to see the reason for his suffering. And he did not begrudge his abusers, but forgave them. Even though he knew that they meant it for evil. It's important to note that he didn't just sweep it under the rug. Well, you didn't really mean it. You know, I suppose I can forgive you. I'm going to deny the fact that you meant that for evil. I'm going to think of you as a good person and we're just going to move past it. That's not what he said. You meant it for evil, guys. But you know what? God meant it for good. Look how many lives were saved. He forgave them while acknowledging their evil intent because he knew that God was sovereign over his life. He knew that God was going to be glorified, and he knew that God loved him. In addition to these these three principles... There are some further truths that we see wrapped up in Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. Number one, our personal suffering isn't always actually about us. Sometimes suffering in our lives is meant to encourage other people. Sometimes it's meant to encourage our spouse, our kids, our friends, our church, and to glorify God in their eyes. Number two, something that Joseph clearly understood here. Suffering at the hands of others, even, 
can bring about God's glory and his purpose. Number three, one person's suffering is worth saving the lives of other people. Number four, it's not for us to direct the affairs of our own lives or to make cosmic judgments. See how Joseph's words to his brothers mirror the final confession of Job in Job 42, after Job endured suffering without explanation. Job said, I know that you, God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You know, we want life to be fair. We want life to make sense. Job tried to make sense of life, and he and his friends, even his closest friends, insisted that he was suffering because he did something wrong. He was confusing discipline with suffering. And they said, surely there's got to be something you did, some way that you offended God, because this isn't how life works. But they were wrong. A major theme in the book of Job is that life isn't fair, but God meant it for good. Joseph recognized this and shows us one of the most Christ-like examples of how to respond to the contrition of people who have wronged us. It was obvious to Joseph that their evil was used by God to bring about a great benefit to the world, saving thousands from starvation. Now, Joseph got to see the results of his suffering. But even when we don't get to see the final picture, we must remind ourselves of these truths that Joseph knew. That God is sovereign over our lives. That he's planning to bring about his glory. And that he loves us very much. Frank Sinatra once sang a song called Pennies from Heaven. I remember listening to this as a kid. We had the reprise collection. It's like eight CDs. Remember CDs? Until this month, <clears throat> I never recognized the, um, the profound meaning behind some of these lyrics. Now, I don't know if they were intended to be profound. But... <clears throat> but Listen to what it says. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade them for a package of sunshine and flowers. If you want the things you love... You must have showers. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There will be pennies from heaven for you and me. Now, again, I don't know if it was written to convey deep truths about suffering and faith and optimism. But they've been an unexpected encouragement to me. Don't run from suffering. It's a precious thing. 
even if it's uncomfortable, unpleasant, or even if there's no end in sight. It's through suffering that we learn the most about ourselves, about God, and even about others. 20th century British author Alan Redpath once wrote this. There's no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first it has gone past God, past Christ, and right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at that moment. But I refuse to become panicky as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart. The final point in your outline is burying Joseph. Look with me at verses 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As we wrap up the study of the life of Joseph, what can we say is his story? I like what Ruth Chow Simons wrote about Joseph. She wrote, Joseph fixed his eyes on the ultimate purpose of his affliction, to know the Lord's faithfulness to accomplish his will in and through a life dependent on him. Joseph fixed his eyes on the ultimate purpose of his affliction, to know the Lord's faithfulness, to accomplish his will in and through a life dependent on him. What a wonderful statement about Joseph's life. May the Lord help us to fix our own eyes on his ultimate purpose of our lives, to know the Lord's faithfulness, to accomplish his will in and through a life dependent on him. You know, the central plot point in human history is the love of God. The pinnacle of the story of human history is Jesus' death and resurrection. And when the history of humans on earth comes to a close, the story will conclude in eternity. God is such a skilled author of this story that it's written in all our lives individually, in miniature. It's been said that every great story reflects the greatest story of God's love and pursuit for pursuit of his people. Think of the greatest books and movies ever written. You see Anna Karenina, a great story of redemption. Moby Dick, seeking after God. Les Miserables, another story of redemption. Even 
more recent and less great stories, even like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. You see stories of redemption and suffering and struggle. All these great works of art reflect the greatest story because it's the greatest story that humans can tell. No human can ever do anything as great as God did in the story of redemption. And the best we can do is to retell it in different ways. You know, the Bible is chock full of little stories that make up the greatest story, that make up this huge story arc that show different facets of the same beautiful jewel of the gospel. It's one of the reasons scripture is so beautiful. Each story shows us something different about the greatest story. But what I love about the story of Joseph, and in particular his declaration to his brothers here, is that he recognizes his role in the greatest story. He knows that his prime directive is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Anything contrary to that prime directive that encountered Joseph in his life, he is jettisoned. He ignores. Refusing forgiveness, plans of retribution, feelings of superiority, all the temptations of power, manipulating and controlling others. We just don't see that with Joseph. He not only knew his place in the story, but he refused to act inconsistently with his role, even when it would have been totally understandable to take revenge on his brothers. The pinnacles of our own individual stories are when we bring the most glory to God. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we fulfill our ultimate purpose, our prime directive, as it was always referred to in 80s sci-fi movies. Is there anything as satisfying as that? Anything as filling, gratifying? Instead of seeing things from your own human perspective today, why are things happening to me? Ask how God's priorities from God's perspective could be achieved through your circumstances. God's reign as sovereign God's glory is central. God's love is very great. Let's close in prayer with some words from Psalm 46. Heavenly Father, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us be still 